Thanks, David. Much better than the last time you did announcements. We almost didn't let him do it again. Just kidding. So uh, when I was a young adult, uh, I think I was 22, and my, I had graduated from a college, was serving as an university staff worker, like a college pastor on, on campuses, my dad was involved in an ecumenical uh, community called uh, National Conference of Christians and Jews, NCCJ. And so they decided to have a conference, I think this was in Minneapolis, and so we went to this, and there were several hundred people there, and there was a rabbi who spoke, and there was, I think he was a, a Lutheran pastor or an Episcopal, uh, Episcopalian priest, but they spoke, and the premise of the conference was this, that, that uh, the Jews still, Jewish people still had their pathway to God via the promises of God in the Old Testament, and the Christians still had their pathway to God through the New Testament. Can we celebrate that together? And the, and the speakers both generally were wrestling through that premise and walking through that. And I thought, man, intriguing premise. Do I believe that's what scripture teaches was the real question, which I think we need to do with a lot of things, uh, especially ideas and concepts that, that come into our culture um, that it's always good to say, yeah, is that valid? Do we see that? Do we see that in scripture is the uh, key question. Honestly, it was a fascinating concept, but also very intimidating. Here I was just this 22-year-old, just graduated from college, and you had, you had priests, you had rabbis, you had pastors, and they would give presentations. We'd break into small groups and discuss. And so I... If you know me, I do like to poke the bear every once in a while and see what happens and run. And so I shared a little bit in, in the whole group setting, but in the small group, I shared a little bit more. And I said, here's what I'm wrestling with is Jesus. The uniqueness, the exclusivity of Jesus. If you were here last week and we walked through Revelation 5... It's where Jesus and Jesus alone joins the Father on the throne room of heaven. And that should affect every thought and idea in our lives. And so I said, you know, Jesus does say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And a, a pastor in our small group said, yes, but he doesn't say he's the only way. And I said, he does follow that up with, no one comes to the Father except through me. So <laughs> there's kind of this awkward moment in the, yeah, but we were there to, to talk and wrestle and and so it was very helpful for me to continue to wrestle with scripture and think about that. Now you can imagine my surprise. This probably would have been years later, 10 years later, when I started studying end times and I started studying the book of Revelation. And I started looking at, you know, the, the left behind and the dispensationalists. You've 
heard me talk a little bit. That's the primary way people understand, oftentimes evangelicals in the United States, dispensationalists. And they were talking about the ethnic Jews having their own plan of salvation and the Christians having their own. And the Christians, Gentile Christians, get raptured, i.e. Revelation 4.1, with the Jews, the ethnic Jews, remaining to give testimony to the Lord. And I was taken aback. And I was surprised by this. And I thought, in the context of ecumenical circles, I don't see it in Scripture. And in the context of end times, I don't see it in Scripture. Now, in defense... Uh, of the left-behind folks, the dispensational folks, the, the, the chapters, the scriptures we're going to look at, you can clearly understand where they've formed this perspective. And they might be right, and I might be wrong. But I'm going to disagree with them and, and try my best to let you all decide on that. Would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 6? hit that place, and really I believe that these, uh, these chapters hit a few questions um, that are going to, uh, that, that some of you have already asked, so some of you have figured out, but one of, one of the questions that was asked is, okay, we've got this timeline, which we'll take a look at uh, if this is your first Sunday here for the series, uh, Pastor, where are we on the timeline of Revelation? Excellent question. Some of you have figured that out. No, don't go there yet. We have to, we'll get there, all right? <laughs> don't steal my thunder. All right, and then secondly, what about the, the Jewish people and this argument of uh, the, to a separation of the people of God, ethnic Jews and Gentile Christians? Good, important question that we need to ask that affects a lot of our understanding of the book of Revelation. And then another question is this, which is kind of a summation of some of your questions to me. So what about us? We're reading this book, Pastor, and it is a little bit scary. <laughs> Would you give us a little bit of comfort? No, I'm not giving you any comfort. No, we're going to get to... I think there's some assurances in these chapters. So let's dig in. With those three questions in mind, where are we on the timeline? What about the Jewish people and the Gentile Christians? And what about us? Are we going to be okay? All right. Storyline of Revelation. For those of you joining us for the first time, we looked at Revelation 4. It was a glimpse of the throne room of God with the, the, the four uh, creatures, angelic creatures, the, the 24 elders, but someone was missing. Something was missing in this view of Revelation 4. Who was that? Jesus. Jesus. Revelation 5 comes. I believe that was the moment that Jesus ascended into heaven. And he steps onto and shares the throne. And we saw in Revelation 5 this shift in heaven where all the heavenly host worshiping God in Revelation 4 now worships God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All right, that brings us Jesus alone is worthy to break 
the seal, a, a scroll that had probably uh, the picture that was given to John was this scroll with writing on it and a, a seal like in wax, how they used to do with old letters and wax. And then as they break a seal, um, they come to another seal and break that and they read the scroll and John is given a picture, a, a vision of what is happening in this how will the Lord um, reclaim the world. Chapter 6 of Revelation, verse 1, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown authority, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and make people kill each other, one another. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, again, imagine the, the scroll unraveling and the seal being broken and read and us giving pictures of these seals. Verse 5, when the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard that what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures say, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, flam, uh, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. We'll pause right there. This is one of the most famous sections of the book of Revelation. It is the four horsemen of the apocalypse, known throughout our culture and throughout the world. In fact, I was uh, watching, uh, probably many of you have seen Wyatt Earp with uh, Kurt Russell and Val Kilmer. Has some of you seen that? I mean, it's been on replay like a million times. What's... Tombstone, that's it, Tombstone, yes. And Tombstone takes this, and they actually put the Wyatt Earp story, which is a historical story, into the context of biblical language. You know that? It's worth re-watching. And, and it begins with a horrible scene. I, I thought about showing it, but I thought, no, it's Mother's Day. It's a terrible... <laughs> So it opens with this scene where the bad guys, the cowboys, break up a wedding, a Mexican wedding, and they, they actually kill the groom, and they sit down at the wedding feast after they've killed the wedding party and killed everybody, and they're eating the wedding food. How terrible. 
And there's this Mexican priest who they didn't kill, probably because he was a priest, and he starts walking towards them and saying in Spanish, he starts quoting a portion of what we read. The, the pale horse of death. In other words, he was so disgusted by what they just did. He was saying, judgment is coming. The pale horse is riding against you. And then terribly, Ringo shoots the priest in the forehead. And even the other bad guys are like, yowzers, you just did that. By the way, at the end of the story, Ringo faces uh, Doc Holliday in a draw, and uh, Doc Holliday shoots him. Guess where he shoots him? In the forehead. In the forehead. A little picture of God's judgment. I would like to suggest to you that oftentimes people have seen the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse as part of the seven-year uh, tribulation, the great tribulation. But if you recall, in my understanding of the book of Revelation, the, the tribulation has not begun yet. In fact, that is still before us in the book of Revelation. I believe that Jesus ascended to heaven, uh, Revelation 5, and he started the last days. And he opened the seal, and this is a picture of the last days. So the four horsemen of the apocalypse you could also call the four horsemen of history. That we are seeing God's judgment throughout history that is poured out on the earth Again and again. So again, look at the, the four horsemen. The white horse of conquest. The red horse that takes peace from the world. The, the, the horse of war. The black horse of famine. Talking about scales and exaggerated prices of wheat. Um, the pale horse of death. And Hades. Some people have actually applied these horses to moments in history, like, oh, World War I was this horse, and World War II was this horse. I don't believe that. I don't apply these events in history. They're foreshadowing of what's about to take place. But I believe those four horsemen were riding during World War I, during World War II. I believe those four horsemen are riding today. Guess where? Ukraine. Ukraine. Yes. So you have, think of, about this now. In Ukraine, you have someone, a leader, who is bent on conquest, Putin. And so he's invaded he, he's brought war, that, that conquest is the white horse, the war is the red horse, and it's bringing these uh, issues with, with famine and food, and, and they're immigrating all over, affecting that, and there's death. There's terrible, terrible stories coming from Ukraine. We're seeing this judgment unfold right before our very eyes today. There's another famous passage of scripture where Jesus is 
on the Mount of Olives. It's called the uh, Olivet, uh, Olivet Discourse. And he's talking about end times. And listen to what he says. We're just reading from Matthew. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. That has happened throughout the generations. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. He, he's saying be mindful, be my, uh, um, watchful of these events and world events, Pray for these world events. But such things must happen. We'll talk about that must happen a little bit next week. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famine and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. I believe that the the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse or the history are the birth pains that Jesus was talking about. We see those and go, Jesus talked about this, that we would face this, that these things must happen in order for him to reclaim the world. Don't be alarmed. This is part of God's unfolding plan in history. All right, let's continue on with the seals, verse 5. Change direction just a bit on this. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. These are, are martyrs, I would believe, throughout history, throughout these times. And people are being martyred today, Christians, for their faith. And so they're being collected by God. They're with God in heaven. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and, and sisters, were killed just as they, they had been. What are they crying out for? Hold on to this. They are crying out for justice. It's an important cry. It's important that we recognize the role of justice in the unfolding story of Revelation and in the world. That was the, the fifth seal. The sixth seal, 12. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. Now, I, I want you to pay attention. There's a, in my mind, there's a little bit different in the sixth seal. The, the, the first four, or you could say five, I could see as forces being allowed to be un, uh, unleashed in the history of the world. Conquest, war, famine and death. And yet the sixth seal reads as if it's a particular event that John is seeing. 
Verse 12, I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of, uh, uh, made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. Also another famous part of uh, Revelation, the, the blood red moon. And the stars in the sky fell to earth. So these things are happening in the heavens. These celestial things are happening. As figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind, the heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. A powerful symbol representing of earthquake in the, and not only in the heavenlies but on earth, this massive shaking that was happening. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it I believe that the sixth seal is an event that we are going to see that's going to rock the foundations of the world that that people around the world and rulers will recognize this as a biblical event they'll see it it will upset in some ways the pandemic Right was a, a world event. Every nation, every people was affected by the disease. Somehow, actions in the heavens and on the earth, everyone will be affected. And part of God's judgment is an ongoing invitation for people to repent and recognize the God of the universe. All right, incredible moment. Let's uh, look real quickly at the chart. Some of you have uh, already figured out my understanding. This is chapter six and the seals, and I believe the seals are happening throughout history, this church age. And then perhaps I believe the, the sixth seal is just before we get to the seven-year tribulation. You see that? You, you could uh, even see uh, seven a, as part of that, where we're going to see an unfolding of the, of the trumpets and the bowls during the seven-year tribulation. Okay, Natalie got it up there. You are here. You see that? You are here. I believe we're in the, in the time of the seals where we're seeing the four horsemen of the apocalypse ride out again and again and again. If you have any questions about that, again, Pastor Jedediah would be happy to patiently answer any questions. Chapter 7. After this, I, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or, or on any tree, mindful that there's portions and aspects of restraint, that God is restraining 
some of these judgments throughout the book of Revelation. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the, the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. All right, we're going to pause right there because 144,000 is an important issue that has been debated back and forth. Do we take that number literally? Do we understand that as ethnic Jews or, or Christians? So um, I, it, it is disconcerting if you take that number literally because 144,000 is not a whole lot of people that are saved. I feel good about myself, but I'm just concerned about you all, really, <laughs> for that. I'm just kidding. All right, so, no, I don't believe that number is meant to take literal. Remember, this is a book of symbols. And in fact, I feel like the symbol of the number is relatively straightforward. Do you remember the 24 elders that we talked about in the throne room of God? Symbolically representing, perhaps, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. So you've got Jews and Gentiles, all the redeemed of the Lord with elders on the throne room representing all the redeemed. What do you get when you multiply 12 times 12 times 1,000? Yes, 144,000. I think in the number itself, it's representing all the Christians all the people of God, all right? Now, it's understandable why some would argue that this is just the 12 tribes. It says 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. That would be confusing, but understand, if you take this literally as Israel, then you have to figure out what to do with the church. And then you say, well, maybe they're raptured before this. Oh, let's look at Revelation 4.1. Yeah, maybe that would work. Mm, right? That, that's, that, that's trying to figure out and make it work. I, I don't think that's what Jesus is communicating to us. It's interesting, just a few notes. I just have to spend a few minutes on this. That the, the list of the 12 tribes of Israel found here in Revelation 7 does not match precisely any list of the 12 tribes in, in the Old Testament. In fact, there's little changes and nuance. Dan is removed, perhaps related to um, that it's not, that your ethnicity is not what matters. It's faith. Some would communicate it to the Antichrist that's coming and so forth. Um, the in, in the 12 tribes of Israel, you have, for example, if you look at Genesis 35, 22 to 26, just write that down. Genesis 35, 22 and 26, you have the wives of Jacob, Leah, and Rebekah. Uh, and then you have the concubines, Billah and Zilpah. And, and their 
uh, children make up the 12, but they're elevated in the list. Some would see that elevation uh, of, again, some who were seen as um, uh, uh, second-class citizens of God or children of God, and yet there's an elevation, maybe pushing towards that, uh, that idea that it's both Israel and the Gentiles brought together as the people of God. A principle of interpretation that's very important in every book of the Bible, including Revelation, is allowing scripture, other scripture, to interpret scripture. And I think that's super important for Revelation 7. Real quickly throughout all of the New Testament, I would argue many books is that the church is seen as the new Israel. That the, the faith, uh, believing it, that there's a discussion of the spiritual Israel. Paul talks about this, Romans in particular, like Romans 9, 6 through 7, you might want to write that, that Abraham's seed, it's, it's not biological, it is spiritual. The whole book of Galatians, Paul is talking about, it's not about circumcision of the flesh, it's about circumcision of the heart. That Jesus, again, going back to Jesus, through the Old Testament, God is seen as the vine in which the people of God are connected to. That's what makes this I, I am statement of John 15, 1 from Jesus so important. Jesus said, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Some would see that as a claim to deity. He's saying the road to the father is through me. And then finally, the, this idea in Romans 11, I, Paul teaches that the ethnic Jews, there will be a great return of the ethnic Jews to Christ Jesus and true, to the Lord. So that means we, we pray for all the peoples of the world. We do pray for the Jewish people, but we pray for them, not that they would have their own separate road of salvation, we pray for them to recognize Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. We pray and anticipate that part of the end times unfolding story is that ethnic Jews will come to Christ in unprecedented numbers as a testimony of God. Finally, in, in, in Romans uh, 11, Paul is talking about, he's talking to Gentiles about the Gentiles and the Jews, and he says this. After all, if you, he's speaking to Gentiles, were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature. So imagine this olive tree that's wild, right? Not connected to God, not in anything. And, and, and a Gentile, Gentiles are a branch, and they're pulled out of this wild uh, olive tree, all right? It says, if you who are Gentiles are cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree. That's Jesus Christ as the vine. And so we, he cuts us out of this wild olive tree and inserts us into 
a cultivated olive tree. And that's connection to God. That is salvation. Get the picture here? Two olive trees. How much more readily will these natural branches, he's talking about the ethnic Jews who didn't receive Christ, so they were pulled out of the cultivated olive tree. He says, how much more will the natural branches, the ethnic Jews, be grafted into their own olive tree? Did you get that? There's one olive tree. We together, it doesn't matter what nation you are from and what your ethnicity is. Together, there's no longer male, female, slave or free, Gentile or Jew. We are the people of God. I hope you got that because I don't have time to go over that again. All right? All right, so I believe that this is a picture of the people of God. Now, look at, um, here's the the last uh, point, is that the promises, we've talked about a kingdom of priests. Remember, we've been referencing the story of the kingdom of priests. And where the promise of the kingdom of priests is from, is from Exodus, So they're taking this promise that we would be God's treasured possessions, that we would be a kingdom of priests, and they're applying it that was spoken to the ethnic Jewish people. But now, in the New Testament, that promise is spoken to the church, not just in the book of Revelation, but also in, I'll read 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, it says, but you, speaking to Gentiles primarily, you are a chosen people, Uh, actually speaking to both Gentile and Jews, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. He's applying the promises that were spoken to the Jewish people, to all the people of God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Again, to all of the redeemed. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, "Then Then I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000. Now jump to verse 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude. Many would see it as this way. If John were facing this, he heard 144,000. And then, verse 9, he looked. He heard... And then he looked. So now he's going to see fully what the 144,000 is. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, 
people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I believe that this now is a picture of the end. We're given a picture of the people of God. And then we're given a picture, um, uh, just before the tribulation, they're sealed. And now we're given a picture of the people of God after the tribulation. Uh, Look at verse 13. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night. And in his temple, this is a picture of the end. And see who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Friends, I believe right in the middle of the book, before the real nastiness begins, Jesus is saying to his church, now and forevermore, I've got you. I've got you. Let's just look at some of the assurances that are in these. Again, look at verse 10, where you saw the the, the fifth seal, and they were crying out for justice. Proverbs 21, 15 says this, When justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. Friends, I want to suggest to you that without a perspective of justice and judgment, you will not only have a tremendously incomplete view of the book of Revelation, but you will have an incomplete view of who God is his work in our lives, and his work in this world. Let me put it this way. If you have ever been severely wronged and that person has gotten away with it and and, and there's this burning sense of injustice in your life, then you realize that when heaven comes to earth, that there cannot be any presence of injustice. That if God is going to bring his perfect rule and reign of his kingdom on this earth, which is what the book of Revelation is all about, there cannot be the presence of injustice that all wrongs have to be righted. Just take, for example, all the wrongs that are happening in Ukraine. Right now, probably right now as we speak, that those wrongs must be addressed. Otherwise, God is not a God of justice. And deep within our heart and soul, we long for that justice. 
I have dear friends that have experienced a, a great loss by a sin of another. And this friend said to me, is it demonic that I want them punished? And I said, absolutely not. That is something given by God. He's placed in us this sense of justice. And in in the face of any injustice, whether personally, whether we see it on TV, when we see it in our nation or around the world, that stirring and desire for justice, that's an end time stirring. We're crying out like the the martyrs underneath the altar. We're crying out, God, how long until your justice? No, the desire for justice is from God and for God. Now, I talked with my friends and said there are some things that are closely associated with a desire for justice that are ungodly, that the enemy would like to root in your life that you have to guard against, like unforgiveness, like bitterness, like hatred, like a lack of mercy. Those things can mess up our lives. But the book of Revelation is a a book that gives hope, absolutely yes, but also is a book that says God is a God of justice and all will be made right. Now look at chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. It talks about a seal in the midst of seals on the forehead. So you get this image of maybe it was wax and the people of God are getting a seal on their forehead to protect them during the tribulation. Doesn't mean they're raptured, but that they have a seal. Do I believe that if the tribulation began today that we would line up and get a seal in wax on our forehead? It's a symbol. It represents the seal of God. And by the way, did you know if you are a follower of Christ, you've already been sealed with the Holy Spirit And there is no greater seal than the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13, Paul speaks of the seal of the Holy Spirit in many places. There's just one. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. If you are a Christian, then the Spirit of God resides within you. You are his temple, and he's placed a seal on your life. Now, I don't believe that we are raptured and removed, but I believe the Holy Spirit represents a protection in our life. Jesus said, don't fear those who can do damage to the body. Fear those who can affect your soul. And he says, no one will remove you from my hand. He protects our soul. No that I've got you. Now, he's going to allow persecution, even martyrdom. I happen to believe that there is a physical 
protection implied in the seal of the Holy Spirit. That in some ways, we will be protected from the tribulation judgments, just as the, the Jews were in Egypt, and when the, when the uh, uh, judgments came, they put the blood of the Lamb over their doorframe, and they were protected to a certain degree from the, the judgments of God. So I don't know how all that will work out, but he's saying, again, he's answering the question, I've got you. My spirit is within you. Nothing will happen to you outside of the providence of God. Would you trust me? Yes, you'll face hardships in this world and in the tribulation, but I've got you. You're mine. And then finally, look at again at verses 16 and 17. I want to read this to you again. Never again will they hunger, it's talking about Christians, at the end. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not be down on them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them by springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Does, do those scriptures remind you of any other scriptures? Psalm 23. Mike, you're on fire today, my friend. Yeah, giving me all the answers. Yes, there's this picture of Psalm 23. Jesus says, I have been your shepherd. If you've asked me into your life, I'm shepherding your life. I will lead you to places of healing and forgiveness and restoration and hope and love. I will walk with you through all the events in this life right now. If you're wrestling with something significant and difficult, Jesus is saying, I am your shepherd. Let me walk with you and love you and care for you. There's another scripture that these verses represent. Psalm 23 is back. Anyone know the future? Well, it's in your bulletin. Revelation 21, 3, 4. Again, a picture of the end. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. I do believe that these Chapters, though symbolic and though sometimes challenging to understand, he's saying to the people of God, let me give you these assurances both today in this moment of history and forget forever. I want to give you the assurance of justice that all the wrongs, all the injustices in the world will be made right. I will afford to you protection. I have sealed you with my Holy Spirit. You can trust me that everything in your life, 
if you continue to turn to me, is done in the providence of God. And finally, the comfort of the shepherd. I have promised to be your good shepherd. I will walk with you now and forevermore into eternity. Friends, what do you need to hear today in your life? Do you need the assurance of justice? Some of you do. Do you need the assurance of his providential protection in your life? Or do you need his promise of comfort and companionship as our good shepherd? Would you pray with me? Just like to give just a little bit of time between you and the Lord. Would you, would you bring these verses, these truths to him? He is wanting to minister to you and your heart and your soul today. Whatever assurance that you need in this moment. Would you just tell him that? Would you articulate that to him in prayer?